the primary way the people were suffering in Peter's, Peter's recipients were suffering was through being ridiculed, ostracized for being Christians. Although Peter's specific purpose in addressing uh, the suffering was for their being identified with Christ. That was the main reason that they were suffering, and that's what Peter was speaking to specifically. However, because um, his instruction is about rejoicing in suffering and talking about trusting the Lord in the midst of suffering, it really has a broader application beyond just standing for Christ. And so we'll talk about suffering beyond Peter's specific purpose, which is suffering as a Christian, because we can either trust or distrust Christ in our suffering. We can either be ashamed of him or we can glorify his name in our suffering. So that's the common bond that we have in our suffering. So Peter starts out saying, beloved, and he cares for the people, and, and that's also a mark of a new section, finishing section in First Peter. And what he says is, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Don't be surprised. He's, he gives a blanket uh, warning or a blanket admonition not to be surprised because we are surprised when suffering hits. Don't be surprised, don't be shocked at the fiery trial when it comes because every believer was, is going to experience fiery trials. Fiery trials will come and they, as we, are always surprised when they do. No matter how much we see bad things happen in our lives or the lives of others, we're always shocked and surprised. So Peter says it, he, he admonishes them to not be surprised, but we nevertheless will find ourselves surprised when suffering hits. The word translated fiery trial is a word literally that means burning. And so uh, what do you typically do when something burns? You, you say, ouch, true. You want it to stop and you want to pull away immediately, right? So when you're in the midst of a fiery trial, when you're in the midst of burning, the last thing you want to do is continue on in it. But nevertheless, that's what Peter is calling them to be faithful in fiery trials. If Peter's readers were astonished at the suffering they were experiencing, they might have been disheartened, questioning whether God loved them. And no doubt you've experienced suffering in your life where you've wondered, can God really still love me and allow this to go on in my life? Probably most of us have experienced that fleeting thought, if not a, a big place of wrestling with that in our lives. When we're experiencing fire, fiery trials, what is the question that we usually ask? It's a three-letter word. You know what it is. Why? And when we ask why, frequently what we're wanting to know is specifically, why is this happening? Why is this happening? And the Bible doesn't give those specific answers, but it does give a general answer as to why it's happening. And, and Peter says it right here. It comes upon you to test you. And you say, I knew this was not going to be a good answer because we don't like tests comes upon us to test us. Peter tells us straight up that the, the trials come to test us. And he begins his letter acknowledging that there are, they are going to go through various trials. In chapter 1 of verse uh, 6, verse 6 of chapter 1, he said, In this you rejoice, and this is a big theme in this text that we have to lay hold of, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary... You have been grieved by various trials. 
So instead of being surprised, we should expect trials to come. We're never going to learn the secret of a trial-free life. Don't ever grab a Christian book or listen to a teacher that says, let me tell you the secret as to how you're going to avoid suffering and trials. It's not ever going to happen. Well, it will happen. It's just that we have to die to get there. And, and by the way, you have to be in Jesus Christ in order for suffering to end. So as Peter says, we should not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test us as if something strange were happening to us. It's normal, normal for us to experience suffering. Because testing is a necessary part of our lives. Don't be surprised, by the way, if America is turning her back on her Christian heritage. It's, it's unusual for people to be Christ-friendly. It's, it's not the norm. The world, that's why we need saving by Jesus from ourselves, from our sin. You say, but I don't like tests. Tests are, you know, I don't test well. Well, tests don't seem to have any purpose other than to make you suffer and expose your weakness. So why do we have to take tests? I don't like them. Well, we'll see more specifically what the purpose is. Uh, What Peter says in verse 13 is, rather than being shocked and surprised when trials come, instead rejoice. Wow, that doesn't make sense. Why should I rejoice? Rejoice. Because Peter says, first of all, you're only going to rejoice as those who share Christ's sufferings. Now, this doesn't mean we actually suffer as to pay for our sins or to pay for someone else's sins, not that purpose in our suffering, but for loyalty to Christ and in relationship to Christ. It means we suffer for confessing Christ as Savior and Lord. It means in spite of the discomfort and the pains of suffering, we keep trusting Christ, remaining loyal to Him. So even if it's not something that we're taking a stand for Christ and being opposed, every uh, suffering that we go through is an opportunity we have to trust in Christ or not trust in Christ. And so that's the thing that we're challenged with in every period of suffering we go through is, am I going to trust in Christ? Am I going to rely upon him or not? In fact, Peter says in in chapter 1, verse 7, the test of genuineness of our faith which is more precious than gold. So it's really precious to God to test our faith and prove that it's the real thing. Why? Because uh, even though um, it's like more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. That's why we can rejoice as we share Christ's sufferings because God takes us through various trials to refine and purify our faith. In the testing of our faith by various trials, God is purging and purifying our faith of unbelief. That's the stuff that he's after, purging and purifying our faith of unbelief. All kinds of testing is related to this. So educational testing proves if you're getting it. And sometimes we test and find out we're not getting it. And as you're all graduating and uh, great scholars this time of the year, you know that you, hopefully you did get it and you're getting your diploma or your degree. We talk about product tests. So tests, products, prove if it works as planned or designed. Or we talk about uh, genetic tests that prove the identity or physical qualities. So testing is to prove and pur- 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 yeah, purge and purify the stuff that is junk that isn't going to result in our glorifying God or His glory for us. So 
really pay attention to what Peter says here. He's saying this is why we can rejoice as we share Christ's sufferings. God takes us through various trials to refine and purify our faith. In the testing of our faith by various trials, God is purging and purifying our faith so that we will enjoy giving praise, glory, and honor to Christ and will receive glory from Christ. But notice more what he says here. He says, Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, in other words, as you suffer for Christ and with Christ, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. In other words, Rejoicing as we suffer in Christ now determines whether we will rejoice and be glad when we see Him in glory. My rejoicing now in suffering indicates, am I on a track to rejoice when Christ returns or not? Because to the extent we believe what this text teaches, that God is doing good for us in our trials rather than ruining us in our trials... If I believe that, it is a cause for joy. And so if I don't believe it, I'm not going to find joy. So it it works like this. Fiery trial is a test. A test, do you get where this is going? Do you get that this is leading you to glory? That Christ is working in your life to, to enlarge your capacity to glorify Him for all eternity and to be glorified by Him for all eternity. So if I believe that, then that allows me to rejoice. And this is not an isolated teaching in Scripture. We see it in Romans chapter 5, for example, where Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings. We say that, and we have to ask, do I really ever do that? Do I ever get there? How can we do that? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, Character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that God is producing in us good through suffering, and it gives us hope that will not put us to shame because we know that this is leading us to to being glorified for eternity because God's love, which we question in our suffering, can God really love me and allow this to go on in my life, It's evidence of God's love. It's not contrary to God's love. So things that we would never get apart from the revelation of Scripture and certainly apart from Christ. Or another text, James 1. Count it all joy. Once again, we're told to rejoice when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. So I have to ask myself, do I believe these words that God has spoken? He's given me at least three texts. First Peter, James, Romans, three different authors, all inspired by the Holy Spirit, that say I am to rejoice in my suffering because God is doing good. Do I really believe God is doing good in them or not? And if I don't believe that at all, I will not rejoice. If I do believe it, then I will find a way to, to, to rejoice. And one of the reasons that sounds hard is because when we talk about rejoicing, we think kind of like a a giddy sort of happiness, just emotional, sort of, you know, light, airy, and just happy all the time kind of thing. And that's not what it's talking about. It's not what they're talking about. We're talking about uh, a joy, a deep, that is faith-driven, hope-energized joy, and and a joy that only makes sense because of Christ's death and resurrection. Really, that is how we interpret everything in our lives. 
as Christians, if you're a Christian today, everything in your life only makes sense, especially your suffering, in light of the death and resurrection of Christ. That is the interpretive key, the interpretive lens through which we view all of life. And with that, we know that Christ suffered as his way to glory, and we are participating in his sufferings by faith, joined with him, and he's suffering with us. We are suffering in, in faith through him. We also know that that is the path to glory, and it will be eternal glory. Well, this is very real for uh, a young lady who I've mentioned in the past. Her name is Christina Amon Neville. About five years ago, she was uh, diagnosed with brain cancer, and she just died a few days ago, uh, June the 13th. About a year and a half ago, she wrote this. We will face trials. We are promised that. We are even told not to be surprised when they happen. She's citing this verse. But how will we walk through them? Will it be along with the rest of the world in fear or anger, as is our first human instinct? Or will we be known for our joy, a joy that can only point to Christ? She continues. It is my greatest desire to choose joy. Not because I understand all his ways or am not concerned about what some of them might look like, but because I don't want to waste a second of this beautiful life paralyzed by fear. I want to embrace the purpose and adventure that God has for me rather than mourn the loss of the plans I can so easily create on my own. I'm so thankful that I've been alive on this earth 30 years. From any human perspective, this uh, young woman of 30 just turned 31, um, had just been married for a couple of years, just had a baby boy a few months old, Isaiah, This makes absolutely no sense. But this is her testimony that she maintained all the way to her death. And we'll see a little bit more about that. And the only way she can do that is because she was Jesus-saturated in her faith focus throughout her life. And especially when she ran into this trial. She locked into Jesus and never let go. And that's the only way you can survive a trial. And do anything like what this text talks about. Rejoicing. So rejoice as you suffer in Christ, that you may rejoice when he comes. Rejoice as you suffer in Christ now, that when he comes, you will have a fuller joy than you ever imagined. So which is worse, suffering a sickness like Christina did, or scorn and mocking for the cause of Christ? That's an invalid question. You can't choose between those two because they both have their own unique pains. But moving on to verse 14, Peter specifically in addressing this issue, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So we, we see this is the kind of suffering the people were experiencing that Peter was writing to. Um, that they were facing animosity and social rejection with the possibility of physical persecution being insulted, reviled, or ridiculed for identifying with Christ or being known as a follower of Christ is what Peter says is they were going to be suffering for. Now, today, there is way more physical persecution than there ever was during this time. And so, uh, particularly in the, the uh, Muslim world, Muslims persecuting Christians, Nigeria, 70% of Christian deaths at the hands of Muslims take place in the nation of, of Nigeria. 
So there's all kinds of physical death, persecution, imprisonment type of persecution going on in the world today. This is very real for them. Um, it's helpful for us to, to relate to what Peter was saying to them because they weren't quite there yet at this season. And probably most of us are not going to encounter this, that kind of persecution where imprisonment or death, now that could change. But, um, but many of us may face rejection, mocking, or insults, or that nonverbal, oh no, he's one of those weird Christians kind of backing away. I'm back and I'm walking away, walking away. That kind of um, attitude or, or body language that we may get. I heard when last weekend's fundraiser for Holly, so last weekend we had this fundraiser for Holly who had the stage four lymphoma. Um, Lori, sorry, thank you very much. That it was mentioned at at the high school and they said, well, where's it going to be? Harvest Community Church. And the comment was made, oh, that's that weird church. So we're a weird church. Just want you to know that. Yeah. And so Peter says, if you are insulted for following Christ, you are actually blessed because this means the Spirit of God is at work in you for God's glory and your final glory. Being ridiculed and rejected does not feel glorious at all, ever. But the insulters are doing anything but glorifying God or recognizing His favor on you. And so it was with Jesus. To be treated like Jesus for being identified with Him is to be blessed even when cursed. So God takes that cursing and insult and turns it on its head. And so they got it somewhat in Peter's day. So we see in Acts chapter 5, for example, when they were persecuted, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer honor for the name of Jesus. And Jesus himself in Matthew 5 taught, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my name. On my account. And I should have added verse 12. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. That has got to be the perspective. That has to make a difference for us. Or we'll never live out this text. Knowing that we're storing up glory that we can give to God and that he will give to us in eternity. And that we only get that by daily, weekly reviewing these promises. Otherwise they fade from our, our faith focus. However, Peter says in verse 15, make sure that you're suffering for the right reasons. He says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. So check the reasons for your suffering. Don't claim, I'm suffering for Jesus when you're really suffering for being a wretch. For example, so ask yourself these diagnostic questions. Have I quit murdering people? Everybody good on that one? You say, yes, I gave it up for Lent. Great. Or am I stealing from others? Hmm, it's a little harder to avoid. From family? Uh, no situations where some of the worst thievery going on is within families being unjust to one another. Um, or work, stealing hours or stealing money, or retailers, or cheating on taxes. So am I done with stealing? And is my suffering related to that? Or am I doing any other evil thing or displeasing to God? So, that's a good question. Just in in general, am I not living for the Lord in some way that's out of sync with His Word? Or am I just a plain old meddler? Now, why would Peter murder, 
stealing, evil doing, meddling. That seems so trivial. Not really. Because uh, I think maybe what was going on there is Christians who had overcome the big, more obvious sins might have been felt, I'm a moral policeman now. I'm going to get into other people's business and check up on them all the time. And so, if nothing else, he's saying, don't be an annoying person in your community. Don't be a busybody. Don't be getting into business that is not your own. Uh, deal with things as they come to you, but don't be a meddler. And he's put that there. So, don't be a meddler. And, and then, um, hassle people. And then, wonder why they're persecuting you, Peter says. So, don't claim persecution when you're just being an annoying or being obnoxious. Or going around stirring up trouble, thinking you're on some righteous crusade for getting involved in stuff that you don't really need to get involved in. However, Peter says in verse 16, if you suffer for being a Christian, don't deny that, but glorify God. So he says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So the name Christian only shows up three times in the Bible. And it was used by outsiders looking at people who are following Jesus. Oh, there's those Christ people. People that keep talking about this guy called Christ, Jesus Christ. So that was first given in uh, Acts chapter 11 by those outside the church in Antioch saying they were first called Christians in Antioch by the outsiders. Or King Agrippa, when Paul, the apostle, was on trial... And Agrippa said to Paul, Oh, Paul, in a short time you're going to convert me to become a Christian, are you? Oh, yeah, sure. So Peter's saying if you're mocked or accused of being a Christian, don't be ashamed. And what he's saying there is don't just not feel the feelings of shame or embarrassment. But Peter means when you get labeled as a Christian, when people ask if you're a Christ follower, don't pull back in shame and give the impression you're embarrassed to be known as a Christian, to be identified with Jesus. Don't deny that you're a Christian. Peter's saying, don't do what I did, like Peter did prior to this, where he had denied Christ three times. Don't do what I did. Don't be ashamed of the name of Christ. But instead, glorify God in that name. Instead, glorify God by humbly, graciously, but joyfully owning that name. And I just have to ask myself and us, how often in ways big and small have you and I been ashamed to own the name of Jesus? How often have we done that? And that's what I'm talking about. Don't be ashamed of of being known as a Christ follower for the name of Jesus. We seek the glory and praise of men. By default, we want to be approved of by people, and we are afraid to be uh, rejected. And so we just know that. And so what, what Peter is saying is don't be ashamed to be named as a Christian. So back in the second century, there was a guy named Polycarp. He was a bishop of Smyrna. It's in Turkey today. About the middle of the second century. He was arrested for his faith and threatened with death if he did not recant. So he said, 80 and six years have I served him. And he never did me any injury. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Very non-politically correct in the Roman Empire to call Jesus king and savior as opposed to Caesar. And the guy who was going to put him to death said, well, I have respect for your age. Simply say, away with the atheist. Christians were called atheists because they didn't call Caesar Lord. 
So depending on who you say this is God, you're an atheist if you don't believe in that God or if you're not acknowledging that God is Lord. He said, simply say, away with the atheist and be set free. And the old man pointed to the crowd of Roman unbelievers and said, away with the atheist. And they burned him at the stake. And he was not ashamed to own the name of Christ. And he glorified Christ in his death. For most of us, that's not going to be that extreme. But every day we have opportunities to own the name of Christ. Now, what Peter says in verse 17 and 18 could be a little confusing. He says, For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So what's Peter saying there? Well, the household of God is definitely the church. It's followers of Christ. That is us. And the judgment that Peter says begins with the church is not that of condemnation, as Peter has already written in other texts, even in this letter, that Christ already bore the judgment for our sins. We're not going to be condemned by God again for sins that Christ already was condemned for. So what he's saying is the judgment that Peter mentions here is the sufferings of fiery trials for our purification that God designs and permits to come into our lives. And, and so he's saying that these judgments are what God is using to shape and mold us, not to condemn us, to be more like Christ. The world judges us, and God works through that. God works through the criticisms and the uh, rejection of the world to purify and refine us. So you, you should thank people for rejecting you. You should thank people for persecuting you. You should thank people for giving you a hard time, for being a Christian. Now, maybe not literally, but then you could do that. And so what it does is it shapes and makes us to be more like Christ because this is what he endured from the world. And the more we become like him, the more we're rejected by the world. And the more we're rejected by the world, the more purified we become. And the more purified we become, the more we become like Christ. And it's a gracious cycle. It kind of keeps working itself out in our lives. The Christian life is not supposed to be comfortable, right? It's not supposed to be comfortable, and we can't advertise it that way. In fact, uh, Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly, a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So ain't nobody getting through this life without some kind of cost paid for being a believer. So we think the more comfortable I can make my life, the better. God knows that discomfort is where we learn way more than we ever learn in times of comfort. So a couple... Uh, Puritan writers, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, said this, Dangerous and chronic diseases are seldom cured by cakes and candies. So I guess we didn't do you any favor by giving you cookies today. So now you need to go suffer somewhere. Get rid of that. Or another writer said this, Adversity has slain her thousand, but prosperity her ten thousand. I was reading about a uh, a young man who had escaped from a, a North Korean prison camp. They're very notorious for having the worst persecution of believers. And he said, in some ways I missed that camp because it was so obvious what, what was valuable in life there. When he moved to South Korea, he said, all we do is worry about money. And he said, that was very hard to be a Christian and, and to be fighting that kind of battle. So if Christians must be purified through trials and suffering... If God saves the righteous 
scarcely, or better said, with difficulty, how much worse judgment for those who do not obey the gospel of God. So he saves us, and he uses a lot of difficulties to purify and refine us and keep us in, uh, dependent upon him with difficulty. And if that's what God does for his own people, then how much worse is it going to be for those who are outside of Christ? That's what Peter's saying. How much greater suffering and judgment for those who don't obey God's gospel, his good news, that is the summons to repent and believe the good news that salvation from judgment is in Christ alone. He alone has taken our judgment on himself and he alone has overcome it for us. He's the only safe place to not be condemned. So either we're going to suffer now for naming Christ and be purified for it or we have a way worse judgment coming. And the choice there seems pretty clear. What uh, Peter closes with in verse 19 then is he's saying, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So those who are suffering according to God's will, that is, suffering for their loyalty to Christ or suffering as a Christian rather than doing evil, let these entrust themselves to a faithful creator. Now, Peter refers to God as a creator uh, because he's talking about trusting in his sovereign wisdom and power. He's the one who called all things into being, so he has what we don't have and that we desperately wish we had when we're suffering. Oh, I just feel so out of control. We don't have control. Only God has control, and he is sovereign over all the circumstances that we're enduring when we're suffering. So some say, well, I get that, but I don't believe God is very faithful or very good in that. And that's why Peter says, entrusting, we entrust to him as a faithful creator. He's sovereign, he's in control of our circumstances, and he is faithful, he is good. He, because he's working good for us. There's no wasted suffering, not at all. None of it is going to be just junk in all eternity. It's going to prove to have been used by God for good in our lives. And we only know that by the scriptural promises that tell us this is what Christ has done through his suffering, that being connected with him allows suffering to be for our good ultimately and even in the present. So in the meantime, we must say, don't waste your suffering. Don't waste your suffering. By that, we're saying, how do those suffering Christians show they are trusting God as a faithful creator? In attitudes, we keep rejoicing. It just doesn't make sense, but that's the gospel. The gospel does for us what doesn't make sense. It allows us and, and calls us to rejoice even in the midst of suffering. Not that we always feel the emotion, not that we don't have grief and sorrow. It's just that there's a joy permeation to our grief and sorrow that we have that is only true because of what Christ has done and because of what he will do. And in action, we, we keep doing good. Um, and by Peter's definition throughout the letter, doing good means serving people who are Christians and non-Christians, submitting to authorities, honoring our spouses, praying for our enemies, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. We don't allow suffering to excuse us from doing good. And we feel that way sometimes. We feel, well, I'm suffering too much to do any good. And what Peter says here is we demonstrate that we are entrusting ourselves to God by doing good in the midst of our suffering. So, uh, how do we prepare and not be surprised by testing and suffering? 
We're going to hear a little bit from uh, Christina Amon. Alex, don't put that quote up yet, but I'm going to talk a little bit about how uh, her mother was commenting that Christina, on June 4th, so just a few days ago, 11 days ago, was saying, Jesus is coming, he's very near. Jesus is coming, he's very near. And I saw her, and she posted this on Facebook, and I commented, uh, Jesus is Christina's life. And her mother replied back to me saying, um, it's so true. She thinks of nothing else but Jesus. She has surrendered all. She has lived a beautiful, full life. I've learned so much from her. She says one of the major lessons she's learned is not spend any time worrying about worst fears. She had often thought about how she didn't want to end independency with us taking care of her and her mind not functioning well. Now that she's living her worst fear, she is full of grace and thankfulness and joy. She did not get there by accident. She got there by hanging on to Jesus with all of her faith and living out the joy that she, 18 months prior, had said, I'm choosing joy because of Christ. Even though I fear the circumstances, because of Christ, I'm choosing joy. And so now, Alex, you can go and put that uh, uh, blog up. Quote, Here's another quote from her blog from 18 months ago. My friends, we are meant to live powerful lives. What does powerful look like to me? Abiding so deeply with Jesus that no degree of pain or difficulty that enters my life will be able to sway me from trusting his goodness, sharing his hope, and being open to any way he would like to use me to make his name known on, on this earth. And Christina did that. And God has used her to encourage hundreds and hundreds of people by the way she faced and the way she faced death and the way she died. The weather suffering is due to sickness, circumstances, being socially rejected and mocked, marginalized. Rejoice in Christ as he purifies you and prepares you with glory to rejoice and be glad in his glory forever. And... Uh, For Father's Day, dads, we ought to be leading the way in this. Let's pray. Father, we've talked about what makes absolutely no sense except for Jesus Christ, making it make sense. Because he, for the joy set before him, despised the shame of the cross. And yet, he pursued joy. And he knew he had a solid hope in the victorious outcome. So, Father, we have that same solid hope in Jesus Christ. We sang it, that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, Jesus' blood and righteousness. And, Father, we say that. And Would you give us the grace to believe it and live it out in all kinds of suffering, irritations, minor, up to, up to major suffering of relational breakdowns and horrible sicknesses. Whatever we face, Father, we want to be people of faith in the the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, knowing that as we rejoice now, we have sure and certain hope for future glory. May that, Father, really make a difference for us today. May we not leave and say, okay, yeah, 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 and then just leave and walk out here today without really locking hold of that truth and ask this in Christ's name. Amen.